My brother was 18 years old. He was a male. He had bipolar depression, and he had access to firearms. Those are all the points that check off a recipe for disaster. You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, our guest is Representative Mickey Dollins from South Oklahoma City. We invited Mickey on the show to talk about his dedication to saving lives from suicide because, sadly, Mickey lost his own brother, Joe, to suicide nine years ago. On social media, Mickey once shared this story about Joe. After Joe's first attempt, I avoided talking about it with him because I thought those discussions may resurface suicidal thoughts. After he died, I learned the opposite is true. Talking openly about the subject of suicide is proven to be very helpful. Those are powerful words. So to save lives from suicide, Mickey has filed legislation that would require schools to print the number of the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline and Crisis Text Line on student ID cards for 7th through 12th grade students. And by the way, the Suicide Prevention Lifeline number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, that's 1-800-273-TALK. Mickey has said his legislation is, quote, a pragmatic, cost-effective approach that not only makes it easier for young people to connect with trained mental health professionals, but it also reminds them that they are not alone. And we asked our own advocacy specialist, Jake Glantz, to interview Mickey because they become friends. And before we get started, I want you to all please visit mhaok.org forward slash advocate. That's where you can sign up for Mental Health Association Oklahoma Advocacy Alerts and learn about what you can do to support bills just like Mickey Dolan's bill that's going to truly save lives from suicide. Okay, let's get started. The Mental Health Download starts now. Mickey, thanks again for being on the Mental Health Download. So tell me a little bit what it was like to grow up here in Oklahoma. You know, I grew up in several different towns. I was born in Bartlesville, but I, I went to school a little bit in Skytook and Claremore, and I ended up coming back to Bartlesville, living with my dad from my freshman to senior year. And thanks to sports, I found some stability in my life. Uh, prior to my freshman year, I hadn't really stuck with a sport uh, for long term. And then when I got into high school, I, I know the coaches had asked me to come out for football and wrestling and track and field. And I had one coach in particular named Coach Faro, who had a big impact on my life. He had believed in me, which helped me believe in myself. And every day I remember that structure that I had in high school of going to class, going to practice, doing my homework. I didn't have time to get in trouble. So that was really what I needed was that structure and those habits and routines and just everything that made my life more efficient at that time without me even really knowing it kept me on a track um, that led to a football scholarship at SMU. But uh, really growing up, uh, my mom and dad divorced when I was 10 and uh, spent some time living between both of them and then eventually came back to Bartlesville when I was a freshman. So tell us how you went from playing football on scholarship at SMU to actually becoming a Team USA bobsledder. Yeah, that was a wild turn. I was fortunate to get a football scholarship to SMU. My my junior year at Bartlesville, we won three games, and my senior year, we won one. And I remember after our very last game, our head coach was fired, and 
out of just desperation that following Monday, I went back to the coach's office and thankfully it was unlocked and I went and grabbed my video cassettes from my sophomore year till uh, I guess the prior week's game. And I went to a wedding videographer and we compiled a highlight film and I sent it to various schools around the country, um, including one division one AA school, uh, Missouri State. And they watched my video and they liked it. They invited me to come out there. And when I got that first scholarship offer from a smaller school. The other D1 schools came knocking and eventually I settled on SMU and going to SMU from Bartlesville was a huge change. Um, just in perspective, I was around affluence that I hadn't been around before, um, seeing people do things and really opened my mind up to opportunities that I felt could be more attainable. So that was a very big difference um, going from Bartlesville to, to Dallas. And I decided that um, I was on a football scholarship, so much like high school, my days were structured even more so than high school. It came down to, during season, every waking minute is spent either in the classroom, study hall, the weight room, or practice. And I really thrived in that environment. And so my senior year, we had just finished playing Army in the Armed Forces Bowl, and we lost the game by a field goal. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm going to graduate with a degree in English, I'm going to write my book that will help other kids earn a football scholarship through much of the way I went, which is not being recognized. And in January 22nd of 2011, my younger brother, who I had always been really close with, and he had always believed in me and my sports endeavors, even though he didn't play sports, he was more of the musician, artist type, but he always encouraged me. He he ended up dying by suicide, and that really shook me to the point where I wanted to do something to honor him, but then to also take all of that emotional energy and focus it into something positive. And so when I thought my career in football was over, it was just getting revamped again. And so with um, Joe's, I guess inspiration or what I thought would he would what he would want me to do I decided to try out for the NFL and ended up training really hard for three months and I dropped some weight um, to about 225 and leaned out really well and had a really good pro day but tried out as a linebacker I had played d-line defensive line for my whole life and even though I didn't get picked up um, I caught the attention of the coaches from the USA bobsledding team and they were doing recruiting in, in Dallas and they invited me to an open tryout and Irving, Texas, I believe it was. And I went to a combine there, scored well enough to where they gave me the invite to go to Lake Placid, New York, and tried out. Um, uh, I did another tryout. And after that, a pilot or a driver on a four-person bobsled team asked me to be the, his second pusher on the America's Cup tour. And then it really just took off from there. Wow, that's a great story. Uh now I want to talk about the bill that you filed that would put the National Suicide Prevention Hotline and Text Line on the back of student IDs for high school and middle schoolers. How do you think that this bill would affect change and save lives? One of the most difficult things that we have about passing bills, especially in Oklahoma, is the lack of funding that we have to put forth toward new initiatives. And so there's a lot of really good ideas about, you know, mandating mental health curriculum in Oklahoma, which would require more textbooks and training, and it would also mandate more professional development for teachers. And while those are really good causes, which I think that there are bills that are going to be submitted for that, I wanted to go at it from an approach that wouldn't have a fiscal impact 
that could be readily accessible for people who need it. And then I got to thinking, actually, it was my wife's idea about what is on the back of student IDs. And I went back to the school where I used to teach at US Grant, and I asked my principal if I could look at one. And on the back is just a number. Like, if you if this is lost, return to US Grant High School, call this number. And I said, hey, how much would it cost to add a few more lines to that? And they're like, well, that would be so nominal. It wouldn't, you couldn't even you know calculate it. So I said, well, what if we put the National Suicide Prevention Hotline on the back, 1-800-273-TALK. And he said, I think that's a really great idea. So I had the approval of one of my principals. I went to Adam Jewell, the principal at um, Capitol Hill High School, and he really liked the idea. He said that they get um, kids who have needed needed help or they have like um, expressed at home like the threat of suicide on a regular basis. And sometimes they don't have the counselors there or the parents aren't very responsive. So he shares that number all the time with students and he hopes that they use it. So he thinks that on the back of a card, it would just be that more likely that they would have the number on hand in their wallets, ready to go in case an emergency came up where they needed to talk to someone right away. So a lot of times with suicide, we remember how the person died, but forget how they lived. Can you tell us about some of your fondest memories of your brother, Joe? It's a really good point because when you do tell people that they're almost sometimes they're almost sorry they asked. But no, I'm I'm happy that people ask me about that and if, if and naturally people are curious how he died. You know, he died by gunshot, um, and those are things that tend people tend to get fixated on, and then that's what he's remembered for. And so, to your question, it's a really good point that we should remember, like what. What what are the good things about Joe, the, the things that we cherish and the memories about him? There couldn't have been a person more opposite than me, but I think that's how we got along really well. Like I said, I, I played sports growing up, and he was more of the artistic musician. He loved movies. He was a big uh, Francis Ford Coppola fan, uh, Martin Scorsese. He loved acting. He loved directing, making movies. Uh, he loved playing in his, his guitar in his room for hours. And we could really, you know, we could really vibe over those type of things, which was nice because I didn't have a lot of friends who I could have those conversations with. And so um, Joe, he liked to travel. He loved to hike mountains. Just, I mean, I haven't thought of this story in a long time, but I'm thinking back when I was a freshman in college, my brother must have been, he was a freshman in high school. And my dad and I and my brother, we went to Colorado to hike Mount Princeton. And Joe, he smoked a lot of cigarettes, and um, he was a skinny guy. And my dad and I are both pretty hefty. You could say husky. And uh, so we're we're up on this mountain, and we're sucking air. We're breathing hard, and he's smoke. He's chain smoking, walking up this mountain. I mean, meters ahead of us, and uh, looking back, saying, "Hurry up, let's go." let's go. Eventually we all made it to the top and we got to go sign our books and sign our, sign our name names in a book in this little cabin on top of Mount Princeton, which was over 14,000 feet. And we got to take a bunch of pictures and, you know, he never skipped a beat and we went and did a couple more and he was always ahead of us, but he loved being outdoors. He loved camping. Um, you know, we would go to this little place in Northeastern Oklahoma called the blue hole. It's this natural spring and we'd go camping for a few days at a time. And 
he loved our dogs. We had two Boston, actually three Boston Terriers, and he always loved spending time with them. But, you know, just being outdoors and camping and hiking mountains and spending time with our dogs and going swimming, um, we, uh, you know, those are memories I'll cherish for a lifetime. If Joe were with us today, what do you think he would think of this suicide prevention legislation that you're filing? Well, if my brother Joe were, were with us today, I think he would have a family and probably a couple more kids than I do. He wanted nothing more than just to live a low-profile life, be married, have kids, you know, go to a consistent job. That was, I believe, what he really, really wanted from the conversations we've had about, you know, looking into the future. And so him being a family man and a person who values um, others, he was very empathetic with people. I think that he would look at a bill like this or any other number of bills that addresses mental health and be supportive of it. Um, I think that, you know, one of the tough parts that he, one of the tough um, things that he had to deal with after attempting when he was 14 years old was going to a juvenile psych ward for about a month and then coming back to school where everyone knew what he had tried, what he attempted. And he was so uncomfortable that he had to leave schools. And he went to go live in Bartlesville with my dad. And there he graduated. And then he went through one year um, of college in, in Bartlesville and had straight A's. And, you know, but then that happened. But, you know, going back, looking at it, he would probably like this bill, but he'd probably want more to be done, too, especially if the teachers could have a little bit better, um, maybe be prepared a little bit more for, like, what he had gone through at the juvenile psych ward, which I've heard has changed a lot since 2000, what, 2003 or four back then? I No, I guess it would have been about 2009 when that happened and when he went to um, the psych ward. So his transition to school was rough. The peers, I don't think, understood. Um, they knew what happened, but they, I don't know how empathetic. He wouldn't talk about it. We rarely talked about it. One of the things I guess I wish I had done is talk more about it because I, had, I was under the impression that if we talked about it, that those dark feelings of what he had attempted would come back, and I didn't want to stir up any of those negative emotions. So we, I avoided it. I don't think he would have had an issue of discussing it. But it's something we just, you know, stayed away from. We talked about things that were probably a little bit more lighthearted. But going back, I, I do know that he had he did not like being in the psych ward, and he had a tough time transitioning when he got back to school. That's why he left. But I know that he would probably look at this and think, like what a lot of people do, is like it's a good first step. But there's so much more we need to do. So a lot of times with suicide and mental illness, there's a lot of stigma involved. How do you think lawmakers can help break down that stigma? Well, one, to provide the mental health funding that we need to to make sure that that counselors are available in schools and that their their job isn't to to be test administrators, but to actually talk and do their job and listen to kids and help them with um, mental health issues. Also, making sure that if, if someone's seeking help and they want to take medication, that that medication isn't, you know, through the roof expensive to make sure that people are, are covered with health insurance. And the most hardest part that we had with my brother was getting him to stay on his medication regularly. When he started to feel better, he would tend to get off of it, and then he would start to go back down. And by the way, my brother Joe had bipolar depression. And 
the state can only do so much in providing the tools and the medication and the health insurance and the resources. But then ultimately, that person has to come to a, you know, an individual choice that they're going to stick to their medicine, that they're going to seek help, that they're going to do everything they can. And with hopefully a really great support group around them to encourage them to continue um, seeking the help they need and staying on their medication. So Mickey, you've been a great friend to the Mental Health Association, and we actually got involved, first got involved with you after you attended one of our QPR trainings, that's Question, Persuade, Refer, uh, Suicide Prevention Trainings at the Capitol. Tell us why you wanted to attend that QPR session. You know, when I first heard about the QPR program, Question, Persuade, and Refer, um, it wasn't mandatory. It was open to any legislator who wanted to attend the lunch, and it was very nice of you all to have that for us. Um, I decided to go without telling anyone, and um, my legislative assistant happened to be down there as well. And so we attended the training together. We, we walked away and I, and we started talking a little bit more about like why we went. And um, I didn't know this at the time, but she had some family member who um, had struggled with depression and suicidal tendencies, and as I have. And that was something I would have never have known if we both hadn't gone and talked a little bit about it. So it's great that we have these trainings because not only do they give us useful information, but they also open the door for conversation. Almost every time I get around others and talk about this or um, we, we have these conversations, someone's either directly affected or have a friend or family member who's been affected by um, mental health issues. And so I think that and this, in a, in a way, is helping break down the stigma that you alluded to earlier, and that if these resources and trainings and um, things are available to us, then hopefully we can start to talk. And really, at the end of the day, that's one of the best things we can do is just talk about it because it helps you not feel so alone and isolated. And so, and and that help us um, as you know friends become closer um, to know that we both have that shared experience with having a family member that we really love who who has been battling mental health issues. So, Mickey, what do you think the best thing our listeners can do to advocate on behalf of mental health and suicide prevention? That's a great question. And at the time of this recording, December 5th, 2019, the number one thing that we could do right now is to advocate and vote yes on Medicaid expansion. Going forward from a policy perspective, um, that will be on the ballot in uh, November of 2020. And I encourage Oklahomans to vote yes on Medicaid expansion because you'll have a, a lot, you'll have over 200,000 people now covered under on insurance who otherwise wouldn't be, who aren't right now. And then also that's going to help um, our mental health in Oklahoma as, as well for those people who are seeking it. So in Oklahoma, around 60% of suicides are gun related. What do you think we can do to reverse this trend? I think people need to be very aware of the situation and those in the situation of those who are living in the house. I mean, my brother was 18 years old. He was a male. He had bipolar depression and he had access to firearms. Those are all the points that check off a recipe for disaster. And so going forward, I would say that you know, Oklahoma, there's a lot of gun owners here that to be careful um, to, to be and practice safe gun ownership. And a lot of really, um, you know, a lot of Oklahomans would consider themselves as responsible gun owners. Uh, also, a lot of Oklahomans who consider themselves such don't lock their guns up all the time like they should. And 
And that is key. That is the most important thing. If you have a safe, keep them locked up. Don't just leave them laying around because sometimes even if they're not in your house, sometimes the wrong person will walk in. Even a child will walk in and start out of curiosity. They could end up hurting themselves. It happens all the time. Number one, keep the gun locked up. If you can, separate the bullets from the gun. Do everything you can to be proactive to keep the the guns out of the people who may harm themselves. So, Mickey, in a previous conversation, we've spoke about the prevalence of head injuries leading to CTE, which is a um, a neuroge- neurodegenerative disease caused by repeated head injuries. Symptoms of CTE may include behavioral problems, mood problems, and problems with thinking. Uh, CTE uh, often gets worse over time and can result in dementia. I've actually had um, a number of concussions while playing football and hockey, and I worry uh, that I myself might actually develop CTE eventually. Uh, but what do we think? What do you think we can do to make football safer for kids, and also look out for people who have head injuries? You know, growing up in Oklahoma, I was a little bit older when I started playing football, but I had friends who started playing football at a very young age. In third grade, they're encouraged to hit head on, especially back then when we were younger, to to do drills like the tunnel of love, which you would you would line up 50 yards apart from each other and just run at each other as hard as you can and, and ram heads. And I hope they don't do that type of thing anymore. But those are the things that our generation grew up doing. And now you're starting to see the repercussions and the NFL and the college and even personal. Um, when I was on the bobsledding team, one of my really good friends, Zach Langston, was a bobsledder. He was a lot better than I was, so he lasted a little bit longer. I think he was an alternate for the Russian for the uh, Sochi Olympics. But he was a defensive lineman at Pittsburgh State in Kansas. And he went out for the bobsledding team. We got along great. You know, we just clicked. And I remember my last day at the Olympic Training Center, I was going to give him my um, Kevlar burn vest, which is what we wear under the speed suits for when the bobsleds flip over inevitably. You don't you get ice abrasion and, and, and harm yourself. But they're very expensive. And um, he didn't have one, so I wanted to give it to him. But he insisted that he pay me. So I said, all right, Zach, if you have to pay me, I guess give me 20 bucks. And so he gave me 20. I gave it to him. I wished him all the best. I told him I would keep up with him. We're, you know, we're friends on Facebook, whatnot. And I left. Well, it wasn't a year later. My friend sent me a link to a Vice News article with his picture on it of him playing football at Pitt State. I opened it up. I read it. It talked about his experience playing football, head contact, Even in bobsledding, there's a lot of head trauma. And then it got to the point to where he ended up shooting himself and he died. And they did a brain autopsy and found that he had very bad, severe CTE. And that just was so devastating to me, not only as his friend, but as an athlete who's played many years of contact football from my freshman year all the way up to my senior year of college. I had never had a concussion. I know that I've given a lot of people concussions. um, And I just, you know, whenever looking forward, I know that the rules are improving. um, Equipment is improving. I mean, and it's not just football. It's not the only culprit. You've got other sports that people may perceive as more benign, like soccer, where there's just as many 
concussions. But one of the things is we don't know because the state doesn't keep data on the amount of concussions in sports. Trey Savage uh, with Non-Doc did a really good uh, article about the lack of data in Oklahoma when it comes to concussions and why don't we have that and what are things that we can do to reduce the number of concussions. So looking forward, I'm not going to be suiting up and playing football, but I have a son who may want to. And those are things that, you know, those are bridges we'll have to cross when we get there. I'm never going to encourage him to play if he doesn't want to. I know his mom definitely isn't, but we'll be looking at uh, encouraging sports because I do think competition is healthy and and, and good for kids. But um, sports like soccer, I mean, yeah, we even soccer, but uh, tennis, golf, those type of things, baseball, where the, the likelihood that you get a concussion isn't as great as a contact sport like football. But those are still questions that are still up in the air, and we'll have to consider them when that time comes, because who knows what the game will look like in terms of rules and equipment 10 years from now. Shoot, you know, 15 years from now. So hopefully it improves with the technology getting better and equipment getting more sophisticated. We can get to the point to where we're not having to worry about those uh, people hurting themselves. So, Mickey, I'm really interested in hearing more about your role as the executive director of the Energy Assist Foundation. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the work that you guys are doing in the community? I was hired on as the executive director of the Energy Assist Foundation on September 4th of 2018. And since then, we have raised enough money to build 14 futsal courts across Oklahoma City. Now, futsal is basically mini soccer. It's really neat because it's a free and safe place to play. Um, thanks to a generous donation from 7-Eleven, we were able to build, with the help of Fields and Futures, a futsal court at every middle school in Oklahoma City public schools. This gives kids a safe outlet to go and play with other kids from around the neighborhoods and to build and fortify relationships and to be active and healthy. One of the most popular sports in Oklahoma City right now is soccer. And so I, I'm the executive director of a foundation that is the nonprofit arm of a professional soccer team, Oklahoma City Energy FC. And together, we are just so focused on giving back to the community, whether it's through our futsal courts or by going to a middle school or elementary each Friday and giving away soccer balls, equipment, jerseys, that type of thing. And we also have a 10-week summer camp where we provide kids who go to a Title I school with a soccer ball, really high-quality coaching and instruction, um, transportation, lunch, and a snack three days a week for 10 weeks. And the reason we're doing this is because soccer especially has become such a pay-to-play sport. A lot of times you have a kid who's naturally talented but doesn't have access or the affluence to get the coaching that another kid may have at a young age. So by the time they get to high school, the person with talent may not be as quite to the level as the other person. They may not make the team and they, and they stop playing soccer. We know through a, a study conducted by Fields and Futures that in Oklahoma City, 99% of, of seniors who play a sport will graduate. So our goal is to ensure that kids have the means, the access, and the equipment to be able to perform at a high level. And we're literally leveling the playing field with these courts that we're building. One of the first ones that we did was at Santa, uh, was at, at Santa Fe South High School, which is in an, it's inside an old uh, mall, Crossroads Mall in South Oklahoma City. Uh, the superintendent, Chris Brewster, did a phenomenal job of taking this um, 
deserted mall, putting in a charter school and, and providing high class curriculum or a high high level curriculum to the kids. However, in the back was just an abandoned mall parking lot. There was actually a, a pump jacking unit back there for oil, and there's just it was deserted. So we came in and we took this abandoned parking lot and we put in a concrete slab, futsal court, lights, and now during lunch they have a place to play. And what's really neat is being in South Oklahoma City, you have kids from U.S. Grand High School, Capitol Hill. Um, of course, um, Santa Fe South High School and Southeast coming together and playing on the same court, which they never had before because they didn't have a place. These didn't exist. So we have kids coming together in the community. And we've also heard from law enforcement in Oklahoma City that they, they go by and they see kids playing on it at night because they're all lit up thanks to a donation from Musco Lighting. They're all lit up and it keeps them busy. And by the time they're done playing, they're too tired to do anything. And also they go home and and go to bed. So there has been a reduction in crime and loitering and um, just overall problems since these courts have gone up. And they've only been up for a few months now. How do you think the work that you all do has affected the mental health of the kids that you serve? Talking to the kids who use these courts on a daily basis, they feel like they've been invested in. We come into a community that could be uh, dilapidated. Some of these courts that we build on are old tennis courts that have weeds growing, growing through them. No one uses them anymore. We'll come in, completely revitalize it, put some lights up. And then not only that, but we come back and we program them. So we, we make sure they have equipment and coaches that are there to help if they want to continue growing the game. And the the fact that they kids see that there's others coming in and investing in them, and then they get to also come in and play and get healthy and do act and do um, activity with their friends. It just has an overall beneficial effect on their mental health because when they're moving, they're feeling better, their endorphins are flowing, and at the end of the day, that's what we really want. And and, and that carries back over back home to where they're hopefully making better choices because uh, when it comes to their health and nutrition, because they're already playing on the court. And then if they get good enough there, then they stay on their team. They're going to make their team. And it was, like I said earlier, if they make their team and they stay on their team, by the time they're seniors, there's a 99% graduation rate. And at the end of the day, that's what we want because we know that the kids who are graduating today are going to be running the city in the future, and we we want it to be in good hands. Uh, looking back at my life, I've always seen sports as therapy. How in your life has sports been therapeutic to you? Uh, for me, at a personal level, it's been something that I received validation from at a young age. I feel like growing up, there were times when I maybe felt that my my self-worth wasn't as high as maybe I felt like it should have been. And I found that external validation through sports. And it wasn't healthy. Um, For a long time, I don't know what I would have done without it. And so it was cathartic, but also it was my identity. And I think it was later into my college career when I realized that I was going to go off and do something other than sports when I became fine with not being an athlete anymore. But going back and talking to maybe my 18-year-old self, I would have told myself that, you know, sports are good for creating work ethic communication, relationships, um, working hard for a goal, but it's not everything. 
it's you can take those same characteristics and, up, and apply them to a nonprofit job. You can take those same characteristics, characteristics and, up, and apply those to your family and providing for them and looking out and, and being able to communicate with your spouse. So, you know, it served a really good purpose, but there was a time when I maybe got too wound up in sports and that being who I am and, um, you know, putting all of my eggs in one basket. Thank you again for joining us today on the Mental Health Download. Uh, as is tradition here, uh, could you share with us some final thoughts and close out the podcast with our tradition to say, go do good things? You know, sometimes I fill in on Flashpoint for Mike Turpin, and Mike's one of my favorite people, and he has a slogan that he always says when he's raising money for nonprofits. He says, if you ain't giving, you ain't living. And in other words, it's the same thing as go out and do good things. <laughs>